and welcome to The Letterbox Show, a podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterbox, the social network for people who love watching movies. Each episode, your host Slim, that's me, and Gemma are joined by a Letterboxed friend for a chat about their four favorite films. As you listen along, we'll have links in the episode notes, so there's no excuse not to add these films to your watch lists. Today, in a tiny break from format, but not really, we are bringing some Letterboxed insiders to the table to discuss our four favorites of 2021. That's right. Please welcome Letterboxd's Director of Social, Aaron Yap, and our Senior Editor, Mitchell Beaupre, to the show. We have all had a look over our Letterboxd diaries from the past 11 months to come up with four favourites each and a handful more because we just can't help ourselves. But don't worry, this is still the approximately one hour long podcast you know and love because we've instructed everyone to only go long on one film each, which is quite hard in this year of cinema. Uh, But anyway, the movies you'll be hearing the most about today are Titan, The Power of the Dog, Malignant and... Godzilla vs. Kong. 10 points to the first listener to guess which guest (laughs) chose what film. (laughs) But first, (laughs) you may want to get to know our two guests a bit better. Uh, This year for Letterboxd, Mitchell Beaupre made Mike Mills cry and had a special connection with Titan's writer and director Julia Ducournau and almost single-handedly took the Letterboxd team to victory in a cinephile game night this past July. And Aaron Yap. Well, if you follow any of Letterboxd's social media accounts, Aaron is the person responsible for overseeing the Mads, Mickelson Thirst and Kate Blanchett gifts all day long. Hello, you two. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and Mitchell, how did it feel? I mean, we played cinephile together you almost took the whole thing solo what was that night like for you playing cinephile with the letterbox crew um it was not without stress i will say i was definitely sweating uh, profusely uh the entire time so it was basically a blackout it's nice to hear that apparently we won <laughs> <laughs> i think it was um also about five minutes after you'd um joined the staff of letterbox so you know it's pretty much you know, the only reason you got the job is so that we'll always win Cinephile. But no, 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 that's not true. Also, you made Mike Mills cry, which I just love. And the other thing I love about you too, and I'm I, I'm feeling, I don't know about you, Slim, but I'm feeling a little bit out of my depth at this point, is that between the pair of you, Aaron and Mitchell, I'm not sure who would win in a physical media fight. It's fair to say oh, wow. <laughs> that you're both collectors. Walk us through it, Aaron. What's your what's your physical collection like? Um, it's it's pretty embarrassing. I guess I've been uh, collecting for uh, I don't want to reveal the age part of it, but um, <laughs> a good two decades maybe. So I've amassed a little bit over that period of time, and um, it's just yeah, I just can't stop. What's your prize collection <laughs> in your in your library? I need to get back. To, it's it's like asking me what my favorite film is. It's a, yeah, marinate on it. What about yeah, you, Mitchell? Yeah. What's your collection like? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty uh, intense. Um, I at the moment I have run out of rooms on like the shelving systems that I have, so I have literally just stacks and stacks just on the floor. That like every day I'm like, oh, I need to figure out how to get new shelves so that I don't just have Blu-rays upon Blu-rays on the floor. But I just 
Instead, I, just keep buying more Blu-rays. Aaron's just nodding in sympathy. This is the life. But of course, instead of spending money, instead of spending money on new shelves, I instead spend money on new Blu-rays to go <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> so this has been, quote, a year. And with that in mind, as Gemma said, each person on this episode is going to talk about their main fave released in 2021. And then we'll go through quick honorable mentions. So that includes Gemma and myself, by the way. BT dubs. <laughs> I think we all know which pick was Gemma's. I think you probably all know which Godzilla pick was mine. Godzilla Kong coming home, baby. <laughs> and after that segment, later in the show, we'll talk about new to us in 2021, meaning movies that were first viewings for us, new discoveries that came out before 2021. So I'm excited to talk about all of these movies. Where should we go from here, Gemma? Is it time to go into uh, our first fave? I mean... Well, we we've got two we've got the the two directors who are the the only female directors to have won the Palme d'Or. Uh I think we should start with the most recent because that was a heck of a way to start award season. And I'm talking about uh Julia Ducournau and Titan, which uh has currently a 3.7 average, which is yeah, it's a, it's a, I yep yeah, we'll get to that, uh, and 1.1 uh, thousand fans. And this Mitchell is your favourite of 2021. Take us into the deep, demented body horror world of Julia and Titan. So I was told that I'm not allowed to talk about Clifford the Big Red Dog, so I kind of had to make a detour and pick Titan Mental instead. note to myself, edit this out. Edit this all out. It's disgusting. <laughs> Clifford's coming back. You said you wouldn't even mention the title. <laughs> but no, I, you know, as, as is true with Clifford, a lot of movies really affected me uh, this year and, and really... Extreme ways, and you know, I'll, I'll drop a couple more in the honorable mentions. But I, genuinely, in all sincerity, Titan, you know, affected me in a way that I don't think anything else even came close to. Um, I'm, you know, for people who don't know, I'm non-binary. I use they/them pronouns, and I always kind of feel like, you know, I'm watching films as they're made from this kind of like binary perspective and understanding of the world. You know, there's so much talk, especially these days, and rightfully so, about you know, male gaze and sometimes about female gaze and like what that even means. Um, but Titan, I kind of felt like was the first movie that I've seen where I was watching it presented as almost like a non-binary gaze or like a gender non-conforming gaze. I think the way that Julia DeCorno kind of queers gender in the film felt like such an alarming kind of visceral representation of how I personally see the world as she really breaks down these ideas of like what's masculine, what's feminine, and like what those words even mean, which ultimately they mean nothing. You know, she just like mm -hmm. rips open kind of these boxes that we're all placed into socially. And she presents this idea that like, maybe this is all a construct. And at the end of the day, it's all fluid. There's so much more than what we're led to believe. You know what I mean? This is not you. I looked up the synopsis, you know, that is pulled in and, and is on Letterboxd right now. Listen to the synopsis for this movie. 
Following a series of unexplained crimes, a former firefighter is reunited with his son who has been missing for 10 years. That is like the, <laughs> the most yeah. like, what? Like, what movie is that? That is the strangest synopsis. I've seen this movie and that is, you know, that is an amazing tease for this movie. It's just the last thing I would have thought of when kind of pitching this. So how do you pitch it, Mitchell? That's, yeah, see, that's an interesting thing because I, you know, when thinking about how I wanted to even start discussing it, it's like, yeah, you know, it makes sense to start with talking about kind of the basic logline of what a movie is. But Titan, one of the really interesting things about how she totally subverts expectation is, you know, this movie is not what you could even possibly sell it as, you know, the marketing for it sold it as, you know, this really extreme severe body horror. It kind of is that for the first, you know, 15 minutes. And then it becomes something else entirely with, you know, I mean, it's about, you know, a woman who is also kind of a serial killer and, you know, she (laughs) feels like disconnected from the world, but she's running away from, you know, these crimes that she committed so that she's not apprehended by the police. And in doing so, she takes up this opportunity to um, sort of camouflage herself by disguising as this boy who disappeared many years ago, the son of a firefighter. And then he accepts her. He hasn't seen, you know, his son in so many years. So he just thinks that that's you know, or at least we're led to believe that he thinks that that actually is his child. And that's what the first 20 minutes of the movie (laughs) and (laughs) the directions that it goes from there are just so much beyond like you can possibly imagine like what they would be because she really, Mm. you know, she went into it with this idea of totally deconstructing even the idea of the third, the three act structure of films. So it, the structure of the movie Mm. itself is just as fluid as anything else. It's completely mm. like reinventing how you think that you would watch a movie. I feel like of all the movies that came out this year, Titan is the one that has parasite level uh, plot twists. Right. If that makes, if that's not a <laughs> cheesy thing to say, it's the, you know, it's the one where you go in with a very vague notion of plot and no idea where you're about to be taken. Yeah. Uh, the structure of Titan is definitely. Uh, so um, it appeals to me and that's the way that it sort of kind of starts one thing and then it sort of goes the other direction by the end almost. And there's another film that came out this year called Agnes um, by Mickey Reese. And it's, um, I, I just love the way films, you, you can do that where it's like one thing at the end, it's completely another thing. It's like it kind of vanishes from what it originally was. And it's sort of, yeah, I, I love seeing that happen. And I think Titan does that immensely well. This was probably the most recent movie that I can think of that sent shockwaves through like my group of friends, like, oh, Titan, you gotta see Titan. You're not ready for Titan. You know, like and I was like, oh God, what am I what am I getting into here? Like there's just there was almost like kind of a real subtle buzz around the movie because it was one of those things where like, no, don't read anything. Just go in. You're not ready. Um and I think that might have worked against the hype for some people because it's set like, you know, real like lofty expectations, like and you're like, all right, shut, shut the F up. I'll go watch it. Um, and I, and it's, that was the first movie I think I thought of this year that was like so crazy different hype that it worked for people or really didn't work for people. Well, slim. I mean, given that you are the master of running in the opposite direction from hype to the point that 
Wait, what did you see for the first time this year? Roma. Um, just just that small Oscar winning. Just wait until everyone gets to my segment of this episode, okay? No one's ready for my segment. I still haven't seen Roma either, so. Um, Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Our bravery right now. <laughs> bravery, bravery all around. So and given that... Have you seen Titanic? I, have, have, I right? have. I was wondering when Gemma was going to pull her strings and ask my opinion on the movie. <laughs> I did finally <laughs> sit down to watch it and the hype worked against me, I think, unfortunately. So I, I because I started to mentally put this movie in a box, which I shouldn't have. And, uh, you know, when you hear so much about like body horror, Cronenberg, uh, you know, different than Cronenberg body horror. I'm like, oh my God, what is this movie? You start to get like an expectation of what you're going to feel and see. But the movie, like you said, Mitchell, is so different in in its fluidity of a film. You can't put it in a box. And I kind of almost wish that I had seen this maybe before my, my group of friends, movie watching friends or anyone on Letterboxd so that I just kind of went in totally blind and before the hype kind of like took hold of me. The hype fog, so to speak. So what you're saying, Slim, is you need to to be on the screener list for studios. <laughs> like Julia, if the, you're listening the who right get now. To see it first. Yeah. <laughs> just be friends with Julia, Julia DeCorno from now on, and yeah. you'll get you'll get the first look anytime. Hey Mitchell, before we move on, I'm really keen to know a little bit more about your experience of getting to talk to Julia about your experience mm. of watching her film. Yeah, that I mean, that was definitely, you know, I've done a handful, more than a handful of interviews this year. Um, and that was certainly the most profound for me, being able to express not only just to talk to her about kind of the things that really specifically um, I keyed into with the movies about the way that, you know, it deconstructs gender and all of these like social ideas, but to also express just what it meant to me personally, you know, as somebody who... Uh, as, you know, a a non-binary gender, Um, it felt like, you know, a lot of these times when you're doing these interviews, you get 15, 20 minutes to talk to somebody and they can feel a little bit canned, but you try not to make them. But that one, it really felt like there was a kind of personal connection there that really meant a lot to me that, you know, I was coming from a place that was really personal with the film. And I mean, we also got to talk about the homoerotic firefighter rave um, which, oh my god which is the moment I wept during the movie yeah. because I think we were in lockdown at that point and I was like I just want to be in a firehouse right now yeah. <laughs> so what about what about your honorable mentions for 2021 Mitchell what what are the what are three films that maybe we can quick hear about before we move to Gemma's picks yeah so some other ones that really did hit me a lot um, Petite Maman was one that when I you know, saw it, thought was going to for sure be my favorite movie of the year permanently until I saw Titan. Um, but Petite Maman, you know, Petite Maman was really interesting because it was a film that I I saw it about a month after my grandmother passed away, like over the summer. And the film starts off with this main character, this young girl, her grandmother passes away. And, you know, it, I, it goes, you know, so far beyond that. But it really felt in a way like it helped me also process my grief and not only my grief, but also kind of my relationship with my parents who, you know, I've always wanted to feel more connected to. There's always kind of a distance between parents and, you know, children. And I think that Celine Siama really, really keys into that. I actually did want to ask Aaron kind of what Aaron's thoughts were on Petit Maman, because I know Aaron just saw it in theaters as the first movie that he saw in theaters after a wow. hundred plus days on lockdown. Yeah. Um, I hadn't read too much about it. So I thought it was just going to be a straight 
kind of coming of age film about two uh, young girls becoming friends in, in the woods or something like that. Um, but the uh, yeah, the way it just kind of changed into something else was quite um, was emotional and also quite uh, what's the word yeah, unexpected. I guess it's just mm. I, I, are we allowed to talk spoilers? <laughs> Uh, I have not that. seen oh, it, but it is on my yeah, list. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how much that sort of plays into is it a, is it a spoiler proof film or you know does it, but it definitely it, mm. I just love the low key nature of the way it was told and just um, yeah perfect length at seventy two minutes wow. and then out and it just yeah it's still packed a punch at the end. Yeah, it's so funny. You know, Patima Man's seventy two minutes, and then my my kind of third favorite film of the year is Drive My Car which is three hours long and kind of hits the <laughs> gamut on, you know, there's so many arguments on Twitter about, you know, like the perfect length of a movie. Movies shouldn't be longer than, you know, 110 minutes. And it's like, no, any movie can be as long as it wants, as long as it's good. And, you know, yeah, Drive yeah. My Car, I mean, he does exactly that. It's three hours long, but it just goes by so well. And like part of the appeal of Drive My Car is the fact that it's three hours long because it takes its time to really unra- like unravel its characters and the emotional wavelengths and everything. And then I'll drop in my, my fourth one. My last honorable mention is Memoria, the, you know, the most recent film from Apichapong, We Are Sethical, the kind of master of hypnotic slow cinema. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this one, his first movie was shooting outside of Thailand. He shot it in Colombia. And it takes on, you know, this really interesting kind of examination of time and, you know, how our present is always informed by the past and the future. And, you know, not only the past and the future of ourselves, but also the people around us and like the earth itself that we inhabit. And it's the kind of movie, which I think all four of like my favorite movies of the year do this thing that kind of makes me ruminate and really reflect on, you know, my place within the world and kind of the, I mean, the world itself, but especially my place within the world and just who I am and how I relate to the world. And I feel like you get lucky if one movie a year can really make you like feel like that and really make you change your perspective and just think about what your perspective even is. And the fact that I had four movies this year that did that for me and that I just keep thinking about. And every time they come into my head, I spend hours thinking about them again, even though I've already done it so many times, like to have four movies in a year that do that feels honestly kind of like a miracle, you know? What a friggin' year. Yeah, what a year. We have been... um leading up to this moment for, I feel like the entire season of the letterbox show. And that is Gemma talking about Jane Campion's newest film, the power of the dog 3.8 average on letterbox right now. Too low. Too low. Yeah, it's not in the 3.9 club, which is like the elite <laughs> ratings club. You got to hit that 3.9. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, I think we're going to hit that 3.9 as, as more, more, young queers come to this film well didn't her There's other film that we talked about uh also do the slow oh. rise over the years what right? other film was that slim I don't, we haven't talked about any other jane campion films on this podcast. if there was a drinking game for me mentioning i haven't seen a movie there's definitely a drinking game for Gemma and jane campion on this show but you fi- you were waiting for this movie to come out tell us about the power of the dog and tell us about how it made uh your made it to be your fave of the year Yeah, so anyone listening to this podcast for any length of time will know that I'm a Campion fan, specifically of In The Cut, Mark Ruffalo, and um, and Bright Star. Those are the two I think I rewatch most often, which is surprising because you'd think 
the piano being the you know the big award winner and the and the film that's set on the beautiful um, west coast of Auckland where Aaron and I both live and you know there's there's a lot of people we love in it including my movie dad Sam Neill but mm, it's the it's the kind of it's the it's the sexy edge of in the cut and it's just the sheer doomed beautiful romance of bright star that I love there's other films I love this year too but I've ultimately chosen the power of the dog based in large part on how the reality of the film met my very long anticipation for it Mm -hmm. I haven't read Thomas Savage's novel that it's based on so I don't come at it from that angle I come to it from the angle of, you know, Campion fans waiting 12 long years for a new feature film. We definitely had two seasons of Top of the Lake to get us through in the meantime, but there's something something different. There's something about the uninterrupted nature of a self-contained Campion feature, I guess, and that that just is oh, immersive and glorious. And I also come to it and... I am one of these people who will watch trailers and I will lap up all the pre-release vibes. So all the things Benedict Cumberbatch had to learn to be Phil Burbank from learning to play banjo to learning to make ropes to debollocking a a bull. Um, The fact that Elizabeth Moss was first cast as Rose, but um, scheduling issues put Kirsten Dunst in the role instead and what a happy thing that was Mm. alongside her husband, Jesse Plemings. Plus, Elizabeth had already done a lot of drunk acting in Shirley, so it was Kirsten's turn, really. And the, and the fact that we're in a pandemic, and this is a movie we'd already waited a long time for, and then its production was interrupted by COVID and New Zealand's lockdown. And then, and then, just as it was ready to be the gala presentation at the Auckland part of the New Zealand International Film Festival, we went into lockdown. And so we missed that big chance. Mm. Like, it was going to be the red carpet event of the year for me and instead I went along just a couple of days ago just as we came out of lockdown to a 10am Monday morning screening (laughs) with 10 other people and uh, so anyway how to actually talk about the power of the dog Hmm. well let me read let me read the synopsis we have a synopsis battle maybe that's like a new segment we determine if the synopsis is actually good or bad (laughs) Uh, but the synopsis for power of the dog right now on letterboxd is charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him when his brother brings home a new wife, Rose, and her son, Pete, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. And I was listening to the Big Picture pod with a friend of the show, Sean Fennessy, and he, uh, one of the guests was talking about the power of the dog. And I am one of those that kind of just like ignores the trailers for the most part and just kind of goes in. They referenced this movie as sort of like a thriller. Mm. Uh, is that correct? Because I didn't even know that. Mm. I thought it was more of like a simmering drama, potential love story or something. Mm. So did I until I saw it. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. And Genre I, spoilers. I, I really, really am reluctant to talk about spoilers okay, here because good. it really is. And not to hype it up beyond belief because I also don't think that that's correct to do with this film. It really is... I now understand why the film has been talked about in the way it's been talked about and why um, Phil, Benedict Cumberbatch, has been the focus of the marketing and why Peter, the son of Rose, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, beautifully in this, he's stunning, has been somewhat backgrounded in the marketing. And I think that that is is so important and it kind of matches the story in in and of itself. Mm. I mean... When we first meet Peter, we meet him at the top of the film and he's he's making paper flowers 
in a in this very masculine kind of isolated Montana rancher territory. So it's clear from the get go that he's a sissy in a manscape, right? Um, and so it's it, it, you, immediately, immediately you've set up two complete masculine opposites, or, or, or so we think. So it sort of goes from there, I guess. But um, I, I, yeah, so I don't want to say much more, but I, I'm happy to report that Jane's obsession with hands remains intact and that she's added feet and, and shoes, quite a, quite a lot of different pairs of shoes to the mix. As always, there are many, many fetish objects in, in, in the piano. It's the piano and Bright Star, it's books. In um, Power of the Dog, it's rags and ropes mm. and hula hoops and paper flowers. There's a um, Hitchcockian use of windows and of space, speaking to the the thriller element of it. The house itself, it's just it's dark and brooding. It's not a it's not a feminine environment at all. That that George that Jesse Plemings is bringing Rose to. It looks like something from Psycho, and it has possibly the best terrorism by banjo scene in cinema possibly ever I don't know no one's started a terrorism by banjo list on Letterboxd yet but it's, um, it's, a market it's definitely it feels to me like <laughs> like it's the ultimate comeback for all those assholes who have always told that joke what's the difference between a banjo and a ukulele <laughs> Aaron have you seen this yet uh, yes I did I saw it uh, just last week on Netflix did you watch it on big screen or Gemma, or on... I watched it at the, at the Cineplex. Maybe I should have done that. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't as blown away as uh, the general consensus seems to be, but I, I, I still found a lot to admire in it. I think I was just um, kind of, ex- yeah, it was those expectations, that kind of hype thing were, mm. I think I was going in expecting the whole Cumberbatch thing to be, uh, or like the, the part that was interesting or seemed interesting was came really late in the film to me like I just kind of um, mm. um so I think I just need to readjust that kind of expectation mm. and just relax into it a bit more I think a lot of people who have read the book have said that as well yeah. I know that Brian Formo had had knows the book well and um had to go back and sort of rewatch it having trying to forget that he'd read the book mm. and that the second time it gave more to him. And I, I mean, I agree. I didn't walk out of that cinema going, wow, Jane, you've smashed it out of the park. I think I walked out in the same way that I walked out of Bright Star the first time I saw it and went, huh, well, that was, um, that was sweet. That was sad. And then as the years have gone by, it just sits deeper and deeper and deeper in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> and Mitchell, you have not seen this yet, correct? No, so I actually saw it. Um, I knew that it was uh, Gemma's pick for oh. favorite. So I watched it. I squeezed it in last night at one o'clock in the morning, which um, is <laughs> the perfect time to watch yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> for, for anybody who hasn't watched it yet, don't watch it at one o'clock in the morning. Maybe maybe give it maybe give it an afternoon viewing. Um, it definitely uh, it definitely sinks in. It is very much like, yeah, have, describing it as like a thriller or whatever is a little bit disingenuous because it really is, it really sinks it, you know, underneath you know, your skin and it just, it has that kind of slow burn where it just unsettles you. And you at first can't even necessarily like put your finger on why it's unsettling you. And then Mm -hmm. the longer it goes on, the more you think like, oh, this is why, but also like, oh, the unsettling thing is so much more complex than Mm -hmm. you would even think that it would be. And it creates this kind of world where there's no like 
good people know bad people necessarily. Like everybody's kind of, you know, a victim of circumstance and pressure from society mm-hmm. and everything. And I mean, I think that that's just so wonderful. It is, it makes sense that it, you know, comes from a novel because it's such a novelistic movie um, in a way where you watch it and then you want to go read the novel to get like all of the extra details and stuff. But she like packs everything so well into, you know, the little over two hours there. Gemma, can you let yes. us know some honorable mentions for this this past year that we're still in, technically? I just, uh, that we're still in. I don't even, ah, uh, it's a funny one because while it has been a year for cinema, indeed, I, uh, yeah, it's the ones that just kind of s- stick with you, right? Like this is a favorites format. I know mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm putting it off because I'm just, I'm kind of not sure if I'm proud or embarrassed about my choices. Um, you and me both. I want to say the film I've, the film from this year that I've seen the most often, uh, obviously with my child, is Luca, mm. which we adore. We utterly adore it. One, it's the shortest Pixar movie in a long time, which is really nice. It means you can watch it twice in one night. Two, for me, I, I know that there's a lot of um, call me by your name, like beautiful identity reading into it, and as there should be, it is a it's a it's a gorgeous movie about two outsider fish boys who decide that they want to be able to ride bicycles and eat pasta in the local town. Um, And for me, it felt like growing up in the suburbs, like the deep suburbs, like it takes an hour by train to get to the city suburbs. Just love it. Love, love, love. It's great. What else? Uh, Spencer. So Pablo Lorraine Spencer starring Kristen Stewart. Um, Mm -hmm. This particular case, the screener came through and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying I watched it with other people, but this... (laughs) film is what broke, popped the bubbles between me and my mum and my sister when we were having to isolate. We came together around this film. So for, you know, first time in many months, it was the first movie I got to watch with with the two most important women in my life. And on top of that, it's just, it's just the little t- touches of genius, like um, her wardrobe. She's had an outfit selected for every single event that's happening in this palace over these three Christmas days. And when you see the hangers hanging on the rack, it says POW and you stop and you go, hang on. Oh, princess of Wales, Mm. not prisoner of war, but yeah. We just got an email from the Spencer people. They said no more screeners for letterboxd. (laughs) (laughs) You have one more movie that you didn't talk about for your honorable mentions before we get to Aaron, Gemma, what is it? Do uh, you can see my notes? You know I've got three more, but I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> Gemma has ten more movies that no. she wants to talk about for honorable mentions. I've got twenty five more movies to wait. Isn't this forty favorites? I got it confused. Um, look, I did very quickly want to shout out the Todd Stevens film Swan Song, starring Udo Kier as a retired hairdresser walking back to his small hometown to do the hair of the corpse of the town's maven um, with a side of a, a little known Irish film that, that screened in some festival in America this year. And they sent me a screener and I was like, I love this. This is great. But I haven't seen it come out yet anywhere other than Ireland. So I'm hoping for a 2022 release for Deadly Cuts, which is classic Gemma. It's sitting at about a 32 
among the very few people on Letterboxd who have seen it, um, who are basically arguing that it doesn't know whether it wants to be a comedy or a horror. And I'm like, exactly. It's <laughs> perfect. It's um, it's a, a, another small town movie about uh, hairdressers, the women who run a salon that is being terrorised along with the neighbourhood shops by a group of absolute thugs. And they decide to take matters into their own hands. And it's really exciting and there's a hairdressing competition as well uh so yeah it's very um kind of sits in the in the in the same camp as australian films like the castle and strictly ballroom Mm. it's but with horror with dead bodies it's brilliant um but no my real it's just in the last hour risen to the top of my top four for the year my real other top four is is the worst person in the world which is uh it's and I'm going to attempt to say um, his name correctly. Joachim Trier's the worst person in the world, uh, which is the s- story of the coming of age of a woman into her thirties, uh, and also um, a look at people in their mid to late forties. And usually, those kind of coming age movies around the around the thirtieth thirtyish age, which I love. There's something about there's something about thirty, right? On on your way up to it, it's terrifying and scary and you can't imagine ever being old and out the other side you're like what was I ever worried about Mitchell have you seen that yet I haven't I'm extremely excited for it I love the director's movies I love reprise and also August 31st especially which this is apparently kind of a thematic trilogy with his like Oslo movies so I'm very excited to see it. I'm also, I turned 31 this year. So Gemma saying that, you know, life really starts after 30. Very, very encouraging. Very nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> life isn't over after 30. My main mantra. Uh, we have to move on to maybe the most divisive movie released this year. Aaron's pick. <laughs> I'm sure there are fans out there that would contest that. But. Uh, it's about to get real. James Wan, 3.1 average, 320 fans. I'm talking about Malignant, released this year. Uh, Let me read the synopsis. We'll do our little synopsis segment. Madison is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders, and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are, in fact, terrifying realities. Tell us about your relationship to Malignant, Aaron. It's a toxic relationship. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think, uh, I, I guess one of the main reasons I, I, I love putting horror in my top 10 in the year list is just to give the genre that uh, prominence that most, mm-hmm. you know, it's just don't be afraid of putting a horror film in number one. It's just the same, the same way that um, Oscars, you know, really recognize the, you know, the genre. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love putting a horror film like Malignant next to Drive My Car, for instance, and I, I think that should just be the normal thing. Like, it's there's no yes. no change, and you know, I don't see that there's a big, vast difference in quality of films. You know, they they both mean the same amount to me emotionally when I watch it. So, um, yeah, Malignant. I'm, I'm not a I wouldn't say I'm a huge James Wan fan, but I've I've definitely followed his career and enjoyed everything that almost everything that he's put out and. Uh, Malignant's kind of a, I guess, almost like a back to basics kind of thing where he's going back to a smaller horror film after making Aquaman, which is his biggest film. And um, I think a lot of people, also fans, love that he actually just kind of said, oh, I'll, I've got a blank check, I'll do this mm-hmm. crazy little film called Malignant. I don't know how much I should reveal in, uh, if you haven't seen it, because part of it is 
going in definitely completely blind to this film. I, I did not watch the trailer for this film. Wow. I, I just saw that um, I, the title of Malignant was enough to get me in, and I heard that it was kind of like a slightly giallous exercise in horror. Um, so I, I, I did not see anything from the film before I saw it, which is great. And um, But for people who watch the film, there, there is a point in the movie where it completely uh, changes gears and it does it so incredibly that um, it almost just takes you uh, off guard. Mm-hmm. But um, I also just wanted to say that this film could easily be both the best horror film and best action film of the year, if that sort of gives you an indication of um, why Malignant is so awesome. And have you guys, who's seen it here? I, sorry. I, I have seen it. I have yeah. seen it. Yeah. Uh, Mitchell raised their hand. Gemma, have you seen this? No. I have no. not seen it. Okay. She's doing um, the cut mic action. She doesn't want to mention this movie. The I, the trailers that I remember seeing. <laughs> no, I, I haven't seen it, but but I'm really uh, intrigued by um, Patrick Williams's letterbox review that says this movie opens with a shot of a huge terrifying hospital on a cliff surrounded by lots mm. of fog so two seconds in you know it's gonna rip mitchell what is what are your vibes on malignant when you saw it yeah i mean i, I think it's a pip like it's you know so so much fun um and i think i exactly what aaron's talking about you know just there that like you kind of we're in this world where horror is kind of being pushed into two different realms. You kind of get like the art housey, like a 24 horror movies. And then you get kind of like the, the more like generic, the um, like whatever's coming out, you know, every Friday that like the teenagers will go see kind of horror that is like very, you know, boilerplate kind of, but movies like old and malignant. (laughs) Yeah. I I didn't want to say it, but that was exactly what I was thinking. But like, definitely get Blumhouse. Yeah, it's it's just a different, you know, it's a different kind of thing. And like, if that's your kind of thing, like, that's cool. And some of those movies I really like, but like, you know, then there's other ones like Fantasy Island that, you know, can kind of go the other way. Um, but, you know, a movie like Malignant or Old, you know, takes this kind of like mid-budget, which we don't often see anymore. And you get to see what, you know, a virtuosic like director can really do with a genre movie, which we don't get to see a lot of anymore. And it really creates something that is so exciting to watch. And I think Aaron, you know, being like, I, I was the same as Aaron. I didn't know anything about the movie. I had no idea what the, even the basic synopsis was. I hadn't seen a trailer or anything. I just saw people talking about it. So I watched it. And that's definitely part of the fun is you get to really get invited along the ride with like, you're watching the movie, trying to figure out what the answers are and like what the reveal is going to be, you know? And it's, it's just a lot of fun to really engage with the movie because it really keeps you, just up and down and up and down and up and down the whole time. Mm. What about you, Slim? I'm just going to read you <sighs> this know, sentence I... <laughs> from Josh Lewis's uh, letterbox review about Malignant. It's deeply stupid in retrospect, but it's the kind of stupid that's actually kind of an asset when the goal is to string together a series of horror set pieces as ambitiously literal and goofy and stylish as the ones here are. Mm. Yeah, it, yeah, I totally agree on the horror stuff. Horror is pretty much the only genre that my wife and I both watch in terms of movies. So like, I don't tell her like, oh, I have to watch this French New Wave movie. You want to watch it with me? She'll just say, no, F you. So we did watch this opening night. And I remember the trailers, when this came out, it was kind of like James Wan horror, potentially imaginary friend that's real, question mark, murdering people. And like, that was like, oh yeah, let's go see that. 
Um, my <laughs> wife did not like this at all. My bravery, I actually did not like this movie that much. <gasps> Um, so, but I like go. James Wan movies. The Conjuring is like one of my favorite horror movies. I had a lot of fun with that. And the, I think the reason why I didn't like it as much. So two of my friends do a movie podcast about like, you know, general filth, like genre horror, Bat and Spider. And I watched a few Frank Henenlotter movies for the first time. So like Brain Damage and Basket Case which are like, you know, the muck and the grime of like a CD horror. And this felt like James Wan's version of that, but it just didn't work in that same way that those movies like worked. Like those, those movies make me feel like uncomfortable watching like brain damage. Like there are some just revolting scenes in that, that like are just very genre esque. And this one almost felt like a mainstream version of it. So that's why it just kind of didn't gel for me. But I I am so appreciative that James Wan can even just like spend all this money to even make this. Like he spent, you know, this amount of money making HBO Max day and date movie. Like, yes, let's have more directors continue to take swings and whether or not they hit it or not. Like, I don't care. I'm, I just want them to do it. In terms of uh, your other uh, honorable mentions this year, Aaron, it's been quite the year for folk horror, especially with, I guess, um, Kayla Janice's uh, documentary, Woodlands Dark and mm. Days Bewitched. Yeah. And you have Hellbender on your list, which I didn't get to the screener in time when it was it, it was it Fantasia that you watched this at? Yeah, Fantasia. Yeah, it, was, it was my favorite film. But man, you wouldn't shut up about this film when Fantasia rolled around. It was so... Yeah, um, Hellbender is just like a almost perfect little uh, low budget independent gem uh, made by a, a family of filmmakers, um, Toby Poser, um, Zelda Adams, and um, I think it's John Adams, who is um, the father. Yep. And they, uh, the mother and uh, daughter, they play in a punk band called Hellbender as well. Just need to fact check it later. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, a little, it's like a little folk horror film um, uh, about this girl living in the mountains and the, the mum's very protective of uh, her um, she tells her that she's got this um, illness. She can't see other people. So it's kind of like a secluded environment. But and then she starts um, experiencing these, uh, you know, I guess, supernatural powers. So she's sort of coming of age, but also, you know, just kind of getting, starting to realize who she really is. And it's got that sort of arc with it, you know, like a, uh, a young witch becoming, you know, realizing the extent of what she has. Um, but it's told in a way that's very, uh, just very homespun. I, I didn't know they were family before I watched it, but you sort of get that sort of earthy uh, feeling in the storytelling. There's just a lot of scenes of um, uh, Zelda and Toby just bonding and just, just sort of uh, performing little magic trick, like, you know, witchy tricks. So just kind of mm. those kind of downtime scenes, as well as some really out there stuff. Like the uh, interludes of them jamming in the punk band and also like really a weird kind of um, after effects. Like it's very low budget, but I, I felt like everything kind of stitched together really nicely for what it was trying to achieve. I love how Justin La Liberty says it's a kind of some sort of inspired amalgam of Josie and the Pussycats and Blood on Satan's Claw. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it feels like a horror movie in, in ways which in, in the best sense where it's, you know, you, you just that's a family of people, a family of filmmakers who love horror and they've just gone out and shot this movie. And yeah, I, th I think it's one of the more unique 
I've done six films, I think, but this is definitely one of the more unique horror films I saw this year. And definitely the standout in Fantasia. What about, um, well, we talked about Memoria, but what about yeah. your remaining honorable mentions for 2021? Yeah, so um, I, I did have a, I was trying to pick between Memoria or Wife of the Spy or Drive My Car. They're all uh, almost, ne- you know, just on the same level of uh, love for me. Um, I, I chose Wife of the Spy as a way. I just wanted to, Kiyoshi Kurosawa is one of my favorite filmmakers, and I feel like he's still, um, super under-recognized um, and he's, his, his output's just mammoth and he, he's so prolific. And um, last year, my favorite film was uh, To the Ends of the Earth, um, a Kiyoshi Kurosawa film. Um, and Wife of Spy is it's probably one of his more uh, traditional kind of classical movies where it's not, uh, he's well, well known for horror, but this is like an old, old-fashioned spy uh, drama and um, it's just beautifully made. And I, th- I think people should, this might be a nice film for people to start in terms of getting into his films. Um, Can I just um, have a thirst, a thirstful moment here and point out that the spy and the titular wife of a spy is played by Issy Takahashi, who is the, the voice in Whisper of the Heart and Only Yesterday, my two favourite Studio Ghibli films who like if it's possible to love a cartoon character mm. he's his characters in both of those films are yeah I like anyway uh, on top of that speaking of some of the greatest things to ever come out of Japan <laughs> shall we now move <laughs> to Slim's oh, number boy. one of 2021 it is it is is quite the shift I guess you could say in um in genre Cinephilia, but no judgment here. This, this is, is a this is a no sports. judgment zone. We've made that this clear all no season. Judgment zone. No, no judgment zone. Slim's number one has a two point nine <laughs> average on Letterboxd, but no judgment. It has one hundred and seventy eight fans. That's no so judgment. low. That is <laughs> sickeningly <laughs> low. Listen, I represent the the movie watcher that loves to sit on their floor eating a chicken parm sandwich from Wawa and watching Godzilla versus Kong uh, at all hours of the night. So I need to back up a little bit. So when we talk about doing this episode, we're going to do our faves of 2021. And I went on the stats page of my letterbox account. What the heck did I watch this year? And I and rate highly. And I don't have a whole heck of a lot up there. All the big hits that I've seen this year, I didn't rate that much very highly like Dune really rated highly from everyone. I didn't really rate that highly. Um, so when I looked at my list, I was like, oh God, I don't really have a whole lot here. <laughs> and believe it or not, Godzilla versus Kong was rated five stars when I saw it. So here we are. And <laughs> let's talk about it. So I have a son. He's turning uh, 11 this month. Years ago when Kong Skull Island came out, which is really fun, gorgeous movie. Uh, I had told him that they're planning on doing a Kong versus Godzilla movie to like unite their universes. So for those that aren't in the know, there's like a combined monster verse in these movies. So he was amped. So every year he would keep asking like, where's this movie coming out? When's this movie coming out? And finally it came out this year and through COVID there were some more delays. So he grew up watching the Godzilla movies. And so in the back of his head, he like knows and loves the lore of Godzilla there's a new Godzilla movie. He wants to see it. So when we sat down at home to watch this on HBO Max in 4K, God bless, 
it was like a religious experience, you know? I call these moments uh, getting sun-fluenced, getting influenced by like watching a movie with my son. So this happened when we saw Shang-Chi. Sun-fluenced. <laughs> my friends have this term when like, when something gets so hyped, they like just don't even want to see it anymore. And they call it getting slim-fluenced because that's what happens when like, if I hear someone talk about a movie for too much, I like actively hate it and I never want to see it. Uh, so when I watch a movie with my son, this happened with Shang-Chi. Like when we watched Shang-Chi, he was like in the theater audibly gasping at some of the action. And like that kind of like rubs off on me that he's having such a good time watching this movie. I'm having such a good time with him watching this movie. So in this movie, like, you know, it's Godzilla versus King Kong. What more do you want? So we're having such a great time watching this movie at home, all the action, the fight scenes in the city. And one of the coolest things, in my opinion, about this movie, this is also kind of like how I rate movies. Like that viewing was a five-star experience. If I watch this by myself, maybe like on a Wednesday morning, it's probably not going to be a five-star viewing experience like by myself. So that's just kind of how I rate. Um, the one of my favorite things about these movies is there's like a theory about the hollow earth and that's where like a lot of these monsters kind of reside in or live and in the last godzilla movie uh king of the monsters they have to like wake up godzilla at one point and they go underground in like closer to the center of the earth and you see like godzilla's like domain his like cave system and it's insane it's so cool looking so in this one they actually travel to the hollow earth in this movie. So it's like for comic. It's so cool. It's amazing. So like for uh. comic fans, it's kind of like the Savage Land with like Kazar. It's like this, <laughs> you know, mythical mystery forest area where at this point it's like a country in the hollow earth where like animals that you don't think exist do. And it's just so well designed. It's so cool. I want like a whole movie that takes place in this hollow earth. They don't spend a ton yeah. of time in it in the movie. I was disappointed when they came back up to it. Yeah, it was too short. It was way too short yeah. in, in the in the movie. I didn't know I didn't know anything that had happened because I I didn't see the ones leading up to it. And unfortunately for you, Slim, the film came out before you arrived on the Letterbox show. So <laughs> I had to helm a junkie XL interview all by myself. Um, <laughs> I read that interview but before we, we did the show. It was a fantastic interview. Yeah, he was a, he was a lot of fun to talk to. He's yeah, he could talk for hours about why he loves. Kong and Godzilla and why he can't choose between them, but also what they each represent mm -hmm. in terms of their, not just their universes, but the human universe, you know, Godzilla representing uh, Japan's history with uh, nuclear fallout and, um, and then, and then designing the music for Kong to be more organic and, and Godzilla to be sort of half synthesized. Mm. And yeah, it was cool. Which by the way, I should, yeah, I should yeah. say that Shin Godzilla is probably like my favorite uh, just standalone Godzilla movie. Love that movie, Shank Godzilla. But the thing, the thing about watching Godzilla versus Kong in 2021, I mean, don't don't you? Think, sorry, I just read your, I just read Slim's letterboxed review of Godzilla versus Kong. It just says, "If yeah, dude." <laughs> but it was. Um, <laughs> like, could you elaborate? <laughs> no, it was. <laughs> it was Brian Tyree Henry's character, you know, it was the whole conspiracy theorist mm. and just like watching this film, like, of course, every single film that you watch in the middle of a pandemic takes on a greater meaning. But this one in particular just felt, uh, yeah, that I, I, I sort of surely they'd like they had written it and filmed it pre-pandemic because 
Junkie XL, Tom Holkenberg had done the music quite mm-hmm. a lot beforehand, but it was just like, it was freaky. It was weird. It was like... Yeah, like, I, I, it's funny. The conspiracy stuff, I thought about this a lot because I love the X-Files and like all those old episodes of the X-Files and conspiracy theorists are such a huge part of that show and they're fun. Yeah. And when X-Files came back and Chris Carter did it and like Joel, Mc, Joel McHale, I think was like this Alex Jones parody. <laughs> it was such a big turnoff. It's like, this isn't fun yeah. anymore. Like having these kinds no of characters way. talk about conspiracy theorists, like, oh, this is not my bag anymore. But for whatever reason in this, in this one, I felt like it wasn't as uh, on the nose. A lot of the times it was still kind of like fun. You know, I can still have fun conspiracy theories if there is such a thing anymore. Yeah. Um, but at least that was my viewing for this time around. I did enjoy seeing our boy Julian Dennison from Hunt for the Wilder People. That was, yeah, mm, he was mm-hmm. cute. Anyone else uh, see Godzilla vs. Kong that wants to add any uh, any five-star thoughts? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a king of the monsters uh, enjoyer, so uh, this one was a bit, uh, maybe a, a level below that, the, mm. one, the previous film. Um, so I don't know if you're in the same camp. But <laughs> I thought King of the Monsters was a step up above the first Godzilla one with Cranston. I didn't right, love yes, the Cranston yeah. one, especially that yeah. wig he was wearing. I like these movies the more that like they're like that that first the 2014 Godzilla, the Gareth Edwards one, it took itself extremely seriously. And I think that the ones that are kind of moving away, particularly Kong Skull Island and then King of the Monsters and now, now this are embracing the fun of it where it doesn't have to take itself too seriously. It can have kind of, you know, the themes that are still there that have always been there with, you know, these movies, but they're really more embracing the fun aspect of it too, where it doesn't need to be all brooding and dark and everything the entire time. And I think that definitely enhances the ability to have fun with, you know, Mm -hmm. whoever, especially watching it with somebody like your son or something, you know, you really get to just enjoy the movie as well. Diving into your, your, your other honorable mentions, I noticed that you Mm. did briefly have, the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's last one, and now it's gone. And I diligently watched it last night. And oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to talk about it for 30 <laughs> seconds. But it was just, you know, it's just the same thing of just accepting that there is crazy bonkers future junk science tech in these films and it just works in the universe of these films. And I think that's like part of the joy of the of the multiplex, right? Yeah. It's just the is the bombast. Although, on that front, I just feel like mm, we talk about No Time to Die for a second. I just feel like I could have watched that movie without Rami Malek's character, without any of the Dud. bad guy stuff at all. Dud. I could have. You just remove all of that, just watch it for the relationships wrapping up. That would have been a nice um, Daniel Craig starring drama for me. Yeah. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed in Rami's character um, yeah. in No Time to Die, unfortunately. Yeah I, yeah, I saw it. I thought it was okay. But yeah, the the character stuff was really interesting. I loved Anna de Armas in it, who's only in it oh, for, yeah. you know, like 15 minutes at most. But like, she she just pops so much when she comes on screen. The two of them, her and Daniel Craig, have like such good chemistry together. I would have much rather watched, you know, that for- Two hours of that. Yeah, yeah. rather than like trying to bring back Christoph Waltz and like all of the like plotty kind of elements just really didn't work. But as like Blech. a goodbye oh God, to like, still doing that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And also, and Lashana Lynch was totally wasted in this. I, I couldn't, agree. I couldn't feel 
I couldn't feel the Phoebe Waller-Bridge, no. uh, you know, injection into the script at all, especially in her character. I was like, just give that woman a whole separate double O and yeah. put her in her own series of movies. She just d- didn't work in this world. And though I loved her, but I agree with you about Anna. That was, char. I'll, I'll quick go through my honorable mentions. Uh, Pig, Nicolas Cage. Do, you, do we, Wait, do we have... Four hours to go through. <laughs> we do not have four hours. We're, we're running out of tape as it is. Pig, pig, all that's been said about Pig has been said. Go see it. Um, tick, tick, boom. I watched actually this morning. My friend Danny, who's an artist, said he had like a visceral emotional reaction to watching it. So I watched it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, that's streaming on Isn't Netflix. Isn't incredible? Yeah. Had a lot oh, of lot of fun. Just, Music was great. Yeah, I was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. And then all the beautiful nods, you know, bringing Joel Grey and all those great old Broadway faces in and mm-hmm. and just just the story behind it, you know, knowing that 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 Jonathan is no longer with us, but that he, his, you know, his graduation musical gets to go, come to the masses thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I know is, uh, I don't know, problematic for some, but... He's uh, doing the current best job that anyone is doing and bringing musicals back to the screen, mm. uh, notwithstanding Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen, for bringing <laughs> musicals back. Uh, and Jordan Manuel Miranda with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> she did that. No, I was. Just, <laughs> I know. Let me explain. No, I'm no, just no merely mentioning. <laughs> was not expecting this episode to go there. But my final honorable mention is to stay on brand as possible. Uh, and this this kind of talks about how I was hard to choose my 2020, 2021 movies because I haven't seen a lot of new twenty twenty one movies. Uh, most of my watches, I looked at my stats page again, and it was kind of like all non-2021 films, you know, that pie chart. It was just all covered. So Zack Snyder's Justice League, the Snyder Cut, made my top 21, <laughs> top 2021 movies. Um, I had a lot of fun it with this. It had to make someone's. It, had to the, make someone's it might as well be me. Clip. Why not it, me? It makes a lot of people <laughs> going by the replies that we get on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> So I was I was in. We're gonna get retweets through the roof for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. As long as you just mention it, even for thirty seconds, it's a good marketing plan will. for me to have this included yeah. in my list. Uh, but I was into his Superman movies on my second watch. Uh, I didn't like Man of Steel in theaters. I liked it on second watch. So, like as I said before, I'm a comic reader. I grew up reading comics. And I was one of those people in theaters, like, not my Superman. Um, but after I rewatched it, I kind of just said, like, Let's, I'm going to treat this as like an Elseworld Superman, like a different universe Superman. And I really enjoyed it. I'm one of those few that loved the highway scene with Kevin Costner, loved the visuals. I didn't like Batman vs. Superman. I thought it was junk. Um, I also really didn't like the toxicity that kind of brought the Snyder Cut to existence. You know, it's a huge part of why it exists in the first place. But I enjoyed the Snyder Cut. I put all of that aside. We, I watched all four hours of that and I had a great time. I thought it was interesting and fascinating to see a director release, you know, toxicity aside, release a four hour cut of like an original vision of one of their movies. You know, I just think that's so fascinating and that we got to experience that in, you know, the highest quality possible. I, th- I had a lot of fun. I thought the flash stuff at the end was pretty emotional in my opinion. Teared up a little bit. I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, I'm going to, speaking of bravery, I'm going to be brave and say the first hour was um, really entertaining, way more entertaining than I thought it would be, and I haven't seen the rest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you for your honesty. (laughs) 
What, what about Aaron? Just, Aaron, did you watch the Snyder Cut? Yeah, I did. I watched um, I watched it in two parts, and um, I, I couldn't do the one set of four hours, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, I, I thought it was I, I pre- much preferred it to um, the uh, I guess Josh Whedon cut of the film. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I th- I'm not not a huge uh, superhero person myself, but I yeah I, I could I, I can see why it's resonated with you. And a lot mm. of other people. Mitchell, any thoughts? Uh, I um, <laughs> I watched thirty minutes of it and fell asleep, and did not did not go back to it. <laughs> Look, good on those fans for getting what they needed to get, but the way they got it was despicable. Well, yeah, yeah despicable. And they're still doing it. It's set a standard yeah. now. Yeah, but, and we'll, we'll yeah. always sort of possibly taint the experience of those films for anyone other than those fans. I mean, you know, it's kind of like the Christmas hangover, you know, kids, kids open their presents and then half an hour later, they're complete assholes. Um, it's, it's like, what, what else do you want? Yeah. <laughs> what else do you want? Why can't and, we all yeah. just, you know, peacefully enjoy getting more Ben Affleck on the screen? Like it's, it's a good thing for all of us. <laughs> Incredible shape in those reshoots. My God. So we we're, we uh, have gone long this episode, but we do want to focus on our movies that we discovered this year that were not new in 2021. Uh, ones that maybe want to call out that maybe people should check out. So Mitchell, why don't we start with you? What are some rapid fire movies that were first time watches for you? Yeah, so my um, kind of my four, you know, favorites that were first time watches for me. One, uh, River's Edge, you know, Tim Hunter's mm. uh, very, this like achingly authentic portrait of a bunch of degenerate kids in a go nowhere town and the like sad kind of emptiness that their lives entail. I found it very relatable uh, for me as, you know, someone who spent most of my youth growing up in Dover, Delaware, like a town where you kind of mm. just feel like your life's never going to be anything. Um and this like weird like ennui that comes with it. Um, second would be Deep Cover, Bill Duke's uh, neo noir about you know kind of. I feel like it's all about kind of the masks that we wear and what happens like when those masks come off. There's like a scene in it that really uh, ties directly to that idea, and it's just got this amazing pairing. You know, early '90s movie of Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum, who are just both absolutely phenomenal in it. Sticking with neo noir in like a different kind of. Hugh, um, my third one would be Cutter's Way, this neo-noir from um, the early 80s um, that is more like a sun-soaked kind of neo-noir. takes place, the Criterion Channel had this like great um, list on Letterboxd over the summer of um, like sun-drenched noir. And that this Cutter's Way was one of the movies on there, which got me to finally watch it. And it's just like really interesting, really bleak movie about these like three people who are just like come together almost like a Scooby-Doo gang trying to like solve this mystery, but they're all trying to solve it because they're trying to find some kind of like purpose in their life. They don't really care about like the actual mystery itself. They're just trying to find like a reason to live. And, um, you know, the answers that they get aren't very hopeful or optimistic, but it really stuck with me and made a mark. Um, And then the fourth one I would say is Mississippi Masala, which got a gorgeous new 4K restoration at New York Film mm. Festival this year that I hope and assume will be coming out more to people in 2022, the 4K restoration. But it's the first time that mm. I saw it. Mira Nair's um, romance with Denzel Washington and Sarita Chaudhuri, who are both 
the chemistry between the two of them is unreal. Like we're mm. we're in a time where people are always talking about how sexless movies have become and it watching a movie like that from like the early 90s and seeing just how much these two pop on screen really does give you an appreciation for what chemistry actually looks like, you know, not movies like you know, Red Notice or whatever is on Netflix where they just kind of put the, the whatever stars, you know, they can get on a screen together. Mm-mm. Like this is a movie where chemistry is just like through the roof and you watch it. There's a scene between the two of them where they're on a phone. They're on a phone call with each other. They're not even in like the same frame, but it's like the sexiest scene that I've seen in years just because the two mm-hmm. of them just really like ooze that like sexuality and that chemistry together. So that would be my fourth one. Mitchell mentioned 4K restoration. Gemma, did you know that there was a new restoration done of Vanilla Sky starring Tom Cruise, just released on Blu-ray? Um, that's excellent to know for you, Slim. Merry <laughs> Christmas. I'm really excited for you. What are your discoveries, Gemma, for 2021 that you want to spotlight oh, in a rapid okay. fire manner? All right, going in reverse order, um, because it is a Christmas season, I finally got around to watching uh, Satoshi Kon's Tokyo Godfathers, which keeps coming up in every, you know, highest rated Christmas movie list across Letterboxd for the last few years. And I was just like, oh, I don't know why. I just, I'll put it off, I'll put it off, I'll put it off. Why did I put it off? It's my new favourite Christmas movie of all time. I absolutely love that it's a Christmas film that focuses on the people we don't usually get to see at Christmas, which is uh, three houseless friends who discover uh, an abandoned baby. And must try to reunite that baby with its family by the end of this Christmas season. And um, it's just great. The action sets are brilliant. I love how it manages to follow the three different characters at, at, at different times when they get separated and how they come back together and all the all the little Christmas bows that get tied up. It's it's genius and it's and it's also um, gritty and contemporary and it, it has it has language. Uh, it's great. Love it. The Green Ray, which was introduced to us oh, yeah. uh, by Karen Besser from uh, from The National, who has done the lyrics for the new Cyrano movie. Uh, Eric Romer, uh, one summer in France, a young woman searching for herself, just sat so deeply with me. Love it. And then uh, David Lean's The Passionate Friends, which was one that came to us via Angelica uh, Jade Bastien. Which I know, Slim, you and I both were like, we watched it and then immediately rewatched it. Mm-hmm. There are conversations in that film that are extraordinary cinema. I just love, love, love it. And finally, uh, no, I haven't finished all four hours of Justice League and I'm only one and a half hours into Get Back, the extraordinary <laughs> Beatles documentary film series that Peter Jackson has made. But I did... I did sit through and absolutely love what has got to be one of the best kept secrets among film lovers everywhere, which is Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman. Uh, I, in a, in a day and age of spoilers, I am blown away by how much I didn't know about that movie and by how fucking brilliantly it pays off. And the fact that it only pays off if you sit through it. Mm. Oh my God. Just a masterpiece. God bless. What a list. Um, okay. Quick fire. 
first up, I just wanted to give a shout out to Psycho 3. Um, which I, I've been putting off like I've seen one and two and threes for, for one reason or another it's just been so so in the back of my mind that I haven't watched it yet but I, when I, I saw it about a month ago and I was just quite bowled over by how actually good it was um, I think it's one of out of the four psycho films it's maybe four doesn't get much rep either but um, this one doesn't isn't as highly rated as the second one, which is one of the great horror sequels, Psycho 2, uh, directed by um, Richard Franklin, who's an uh, amazing Hitchcock protege. Uh, and it's, it's sort of uh, one of those sequels that completely subverts the, you go in thinking it's a Psycho film and then it just, kind of just turns that on its head. Mm-hmm. And then Psycho 3, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit woolier in the sense that it's not, doesn't quite fit in, that sort of mold. It's, it's Anthony Perkins directed it, and it's I think the only one of two films that he made. And um, it's kind of totally all over the place and not as uh, consistent, but just kind of the stuff that it sort of gets away with and um, the places it goes to. It's really entertaining. Um, the second one, Suzanne. Um, it's a film by a French filmmaker, Catel Quilavira. Um, she made this other film called Heal the Living, which I really love from a few years ago, and I put it in my top 20. But uh, this one stars uh, Sarah Forestier and um, Adele Hanel, which she's a bit, uh, I think she was a bit young. This, this came out in, let me just look this up, uh, 2013. And it's a story about these uh, two girls who are living with their father. Mother's passed away, and father's just like truck driver. And it's kind of like a, I guess it's a dysfunctional, dysfunctional family kind of situation. And then it follows uh, Suzanne, who's played by Sarah. And she gets, she meets this guy who's a drug uh, dealer. And then it sort of follows her through like a, a span of her life uh, from when she was little. But it's all done in under 90 minutes. And um, I, I, th- I thought the film was uh, just the way it handles time and the passage of time without having to go to distance to say, okay, tell this person's story we need to have two hours or three hours i think we were talking about time before but so it's kind of it speeds what i find interesting about the film is it kind of speeds through all these moments in her life and i've never seen it done in a way that has brings it together in a real it's just emotionally kind of devastating way a couple of noirs i saw last month um ida lupino's the bigamist and uh this other one called the brothers rico um directed by phil carlson <gasps> Um, both uh, kind of show more kind of sensitive side to the because noir is always hard boiled and you got these um, tough dudes and infantiles and just kind of really gritty, uh, tough sort of atmosphere. But these, I, I found these two kind of stood out in the way they kind of uh, revealed a more uh, kind of sensitive approach to telling those stories, um, especially with uh, the bigamist, which I, I feel like. I haven't seen anything mm. sort of like it in the sort of noir mm-hmm. cycle of the era. Yeah. Incredible. What about you, Slim? It's been quite an interesting year for you and I both, I think, with uh, starting up this new four favourites format mm-hmm. of the Letterbox show. It's certainly done things to my statistics that I never would have expected <laughs> at the beginning of the year. Yeah, you mentioned... What, what was new to you in 21? You already mentioned Passion and Friends, but that is uh, oh. one of my honorable mentions for new to me. 
uh, Harakiri I watched for the first time this year. Um, and that's on the wow. Criterion channel. Um, you know, samurai down on his luck goes to a clan to, um, to essentially commit Harakiri to end his life honorably. And then you find out there's a little bit more to the story. I thought that was probably, I mean, that's in my all-time list for the year, like my phase of the year. I, I When I make my phase list, it's generally new to me. Um, I would pay like $100 for a 4K of that movie. Like, honest to God, it's it's insane. Um, Pieces of a Woman, I watched for the first time in February, I think. And I thought this was an unsettling film about human suffering and pain and being stuck in place. And unfortunately, I think I feel like this movie is kind of lost due to the male co-stars uh, off-screen mm. storyline, um, which kind of sucks. Yeah, because but I, Vanessa, I, Vanessa Kirby is extraordinary. She's in it, insane. And she was, oh my God, she was honored at at least a couple of festivals for her Good. work. And yeah, and, and in a way, the storyline kind of, yeah, un, sort of unfortunately, but fortunately it plays into what we know about her co-star, mm-hmm. um, which adds to that unsettling feeling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she was, incredible. she was unbelievable in that movie. And then for the first time, finally, I held this off because of aforementioned slim fluencing, but Roma, <laughs> Alfonso Cuaron, uh, I watched that this year for my podcast and I had a religious experience watching that film. I mean, the final scenes in that movie, I was just a sobbing mess on my basement mm-hmm. floor. Like yeah. I have never experienced probably emotion in that way in a mainstream film. Um, that rocketed to my four faves on Letterboxd. So um, my list has changed since we did our first episode of the season. Roma is now up there. And Aaron, I think you need to get on it and watch Roma this week. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a swap <laughs> with you. You watch Pop Skull and I'll watch Roma. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the year is almost over, but we still have Nightmare Alley, West Side Story, uh, and, you know, Matrix. Many, many more things. Matrix. Matrix. Oh, my God. Yeah. Matrix. How good does that trailer look? Holy heck. So much more still to come. The year is not over, as um, Aaron so rightly said on our letterbox Twitter, we wrap when the year wraps. <laughs> Love you, Spotify. <laughs> no dig at you at all. <laughs> thanks so much for listening to The Letterbox Show and thanks to our guests, Mitchell Beaupre and Aaron Yap. You can follow Aaron, Mitchell, Slim, Gemma, that's me, and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew composing Dynamo's moniker for the theme music Vampiros Dance of Tech. Thanks to Jack for the facts. Our booker, Linda Moulton, for looking after our guests, and Sophie Shin for the episode transcript. And to you for listening. The Letterbox Show is a Tape Deck production. And that's the show. You know, Slim, being able to speak freely is the lifeblood of love. <laughs> He's from Tokyo mind. Godfathers. Mad. Mad. <laughs> <laughs> All the Tokyo Godfather fans that'll be listening to the end, like, oh, What is it, George? Oh.
I just want to say how nice it is not to be alone. Thank you.